Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Good morning. It's 8 o'clock, Monday, November 6th. I'm Desiree Frazier. You're listening to Morning Edition on MPB Think Radio. Coming up in news in four minutes, The Grove at the University of Mississippi was Governor Tate Reeves' country Saturday. I like his platform. I think he's been a good governor, and I think he'll continue to be a good governor. Democratic challenger Brandon Presley visits a Delta community where a hospital is at risk of closing. It is literally on its last breath financially, and Tate Reeves has ignored it. Also, Israel wants to remove Hamas from the Gaza Strip, but it's not clear who would or who could rule the territory after that. More from Israeli security experts on the limited options. This is Morning Edition on MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. CIA Director William Burns is reportedly visiting Israel today. The U.S. has been pressing Israel for a humanitarian pause in attacks on Gaza, as NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from Tel Aviv. Despite these trips to the region by Secretary of State Antony Blinken and CIA Director William Burns, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says there will be no ceasefire without the return of hostages. In addition to the more than 1,400 people Hamas militants killed in Israel, they kidnapped more than 240. There have been demonstrations inside Israel in favor of a prisoner swap for Palestinians in Israeli jails. The Israeli military says its fighter jets struck 450 Hamas targets in Gaza overnight. Health officials there say dozens of people were killed and that some 10,000 have been killed since Israel began its operation. Netanyahu has suspended one of his junior ministers from cabinet meetings after the minister said Israel should drop an atomic bomb on Gaza. He later said he was speaking metaphorically. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Meanwhile, the heads of several U.N. agencies and relief organizations are jointly calling for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. They cite the death toll from the conflict. Jury deliberations will continue in Colorado today in the trial of an Aurora police officer. He is charged in the death of a man forcibly detained by law enforcement. The charges against the officer include reckless manslaughter. From Colorado Public Radio, Allison Sherry reports Elijah McClain died a few days after that encounter. The first officer on the scene was Nathan Woodyard. He gave McClain and black 23-year-old massage therapist a carotid hold. This maneuver, which is now banned in Colorado, cuts off blood flow to a person's brain and usually causes them to briefly lose consciousness. Over the past three weeks in trial, prosecutors say Officer Woodyard didn't properly care for McLean after that hold, including failing to tell paramedics that he was complaining he couldn't breathe. Woodyard faces manslaughter charges, and a jury is weighing his fate now. His defense attorneys have said it was the large dose of ketamine McLean received from paramedics that killed him. For NPR News, I'm Allison Sherry in Denver. Former President Donald Trump is expected to testify today in his civil fraud trial in New York. NPR's Andrea Bernstein says the New York judge has already issued one ruling against Trump in the case. Even before the trial began, the judge in the case ruled that Trump and his co-defendants are liable for persistent and repeated fraud. The Trumps, the judge found, lied over and over about their property values in order to get better loans and insurance rates and avoid paying taxes. But there are still six more causes of action to rule on, including conspiracy charges and insurance fraud. And most importantly, how much Trump will have to pay. NPR's Andrea Bernstein reporting. This is NPR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. Good morning. It's 8.04, Monday, November 6th. 
I'm Desiree Frazier. This is MPB News. Tomorrow, Mississippi voters head to the polls to elect officials running for statewide offices. The race defining this campaign has been the highly contested bout between incumbent Republican Governor Tate Reeves and Democratic challenger Brandon Presley. MPB's Michael McEwen followed Presley on the campaign trail through the Delta just days before the election. Hey now, how you doing, brother? Good to see you again. Good to see you. Yes, sir. How you doing? Brandon Presley hopes right. to do what no Mississippi Democrat has done in more than 20 years, successfully get elected to the state's highest office. A utility regulator for Mississippi's Northern District since 2009, he rose to political prominence through his efforts to expand high-speed Internet access in rural areas and his opposition to a highly disputed coal power plant in Kemper County. On the campaign trail, he sharply criticized what he calls Reeves in action on a number of issues affecting working-class Mississippians. We will make sure that we cut taxes and get the sales tax off groceries, cut car tag fees, expand Medicaid, and most importantly, clean up a corrupt, bought-and-paid-for system. But perhaps the biggest flashpoint between the two has been Reeves' refusal to expand Medicaid to an estimated 300,000 eligible residents. Advocates for the expansion, including Presley, say it's much needed and could help address the risk of closure at more than 30 rural hospitals across the state. One such hospital is located in Greenwood, where residents worry what closure can mean for a historically impoverished and underserved community. It's important because this is a publicly owned hospital owned by the county and the city. It employs 800 people. It is literally on its last breath financially. And Tate Reeves has ignored it. He has shown the people in LaFleur County that he doesn't care whether their hospital stays open or closes. A recent poll found Presley trailing Reeves by one percentage point. Michael McEwen. MPB News. Many Republican voters support Governor Tate Reeves' Mississippi Momentum platform. He visited the University of Mississippi on Saturday. The Grove was littered with Rebels for Tate Reeves signs and football fans wearing campaign buttons and stickers. Kimball Wellbank, a banker from Corinth, says he's voting for Reeves because of the gains made in economic development during his first term in office. He's done a lot for Mississippi, especially here in North Mississippi and Alcorn County where I'm from. We just opened the new sawmill, multi-million dollar sawmill that he flew in for, for the ribbon cutting. And just really the way he promotes businesses back to Mississippi, encourage our, our college graduates to stay in Mississippi. And uh, I just like his conservative values. Reeves faces Democratic challenger Brandon Presley in tomorrow's general election. In the forecast today, sun and clouds highs mostly in the 80s. You're listening to Morning Edition on MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. As Israel presses its military operation in Gaza, it says it will never again let Hamas rule the territory. But here's the problem for Israel. Right now, no one else wants to rule the Gaza Strip. NPR's Greg Myrie spoke with several Israeli security experts about the limited options. Israel's immediate goal of driving out Hamas is a major military challenge. It's likely to take two to six months, according to Yaakov Amadror. He's a former general and national security advisor in Israel. We will not allow an organization to be on the other side of the fence with capabilities to attack the civilians and to launch rockets into Israel. Israeli troops have swiftly taken over much of northern Gaza and encircled Gaza City. But taking full control of the territory may be the easy part. The more daunting challenge could be finding a replacement who's willing and able to run Gaza. Amador says Israel, which withdrew its troops from Gaza in 2005, does not plan another extended stay. We don't want to stay there. This is very clear for us. We don't want to take responsibility for two million Palestinians. So who might take on such a monumental task? Orna Mizrahi, a former Israeli deputy national security advisor, concedes there's no clear candidate. If you want to replace Hamas, who is going to come afterwards? What is going to be in the day after? This is the big question. The Palestinian Authority nominally leads the Palestinians in the West Bank. It used to run Gaza as well. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that over time, a revitalized Palestinian authority could return to Gaza. 
But that seems unrealistic at the moment, says Mizrahi. I'm not sure that the Palestinian Authority will want to come in after Israel. In fact, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, who turns 88 next week, reportedly told the U.S. last month, I will not return to Gaza on top of an Israeli tank. Hamas took charge in Gaza by winning Palestinian elections in 2006. The following year, Hamas militants drove the Palestinian Authority out in a bloody battle. Since then, Israel and Hamas have fought repeatedly, but Israel never sought to drive out the militant group. This time, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the goal is to completely destroy Hamas. Anything less than that will be viewed as a failure by the public. Chuck Freilich is a former Israeli deputy national security advisor. Whether you think it's the right thing to do or not, I mean, the government may have just roped themselves into doing that. Privately, Israeli officials say they'd like to bring in the international community to help run a future Gaza. But prospects aren't good. Neighboring Egypt isn't interested. It's long sought to keep Gaza's chaos from spilling over its border. Wealthy Arab states like Qatar cut large checks to Gaza but show no interest in getting directly involved. The United Nations provides basic services there like food, health care, and schooling, but is not equipped to govern. In addition, Freilich says, Hamas would not accept rule by outsiders. How do you keep them in power? Because it's clear that the remnants of Hamas or whoever will be doing everything to kill the guy who's in power. Yaakov Amidror says Israel should remember an important precedent. Israel invaded southern Lebanon in 1982 to drive out Palestinians attacking northern Israel. Israel did push out the Palestinians. But then a militant Lebanese group, Hezbollah, emerged. Israel finally left southern Lebanon in 2000. Hezbollah continues to fire rockets into northern Israel to this day. We learn on the hard way in Lebanon, we cannot be the kingmakers. You cannot come from outside and determine to the Palestinians who will be their government. They have to make decisions. They have to make the choice. But right now, it's hard to see any good choices. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Now to Ukraine, where the top military commander says efforts to retake land occupied by Russian forces have reached a stalemate. That has angered Ukraine's president, who's been sending messages of hope and victory to exhausted Ukrainians. The clash comes at a challenging time for Ukraine as its allies are distracted by the war in the Middle East. NPR's Joanna Kakissis is in Kiev, and she's with us now to tell us more about this. Good morning, Joanna. Good morning, Michelle. So let's start with this rift between Ukraine's president and its top military commander. What set this off? Yeah, so Michelle, the rift is not exactly new, and the tension has to do in part with how the two men communicate messaging about this war. Uh, the commander-in-chief of Ukraine's armed forces, his name is Valery Zaluzhny. He is widely considered a talented military strategist, and he is also a realist. A counteroffensive launched this June to take back occupied land has had limited progress. And a few days ago, General Zaluzhny published an essay in The Economist magazine saying, look, we cannot move quickly on retaking our occupied land without advanced weapons. He says Ukraine needs state-of-the-art drones and electronic warfare to achieve air superiority, and that's what he says will break the stalemate on the battlefield. Meanwhile, President Volodymyr Zelensky, he's trying to spin this narrative of hope and strength, and not just to exhausted Ukrainians, but also to Ukraine's allies. Uh, one of Zelensky's advisors told reporters that General Zeluzhny's remarks that this war is deadlocked could hurt Ukraine. Ukraine and help Russia. How, how do you think this is playing out among Ukrainians? Do you have a sense of what they think needs to happen for this war to end? Yeah, well, Michelle, what's been really obvious to me in the few months uh, I've been crisscrossing this country, in my reporting, I found that Ukrainians are very tired and they're very anxious. You know, they've been at war for 621 days. Uh, they understand that Ukraine is losing its best soldiers and they worry Western support won't last. There was this recent survey by the Kiev International Institute of Sociology, and it showed that trust in the government has actually fallen dramatically as the counteroffensive has slowed. And Ukrainians tell 
tell me that, you know, the stress of this long protracted war, you know, it's just starting to wear them out. I was just in the southern city of Kherson, which is attacked nearly every day by Russian forces. And I met Ludmila Verskun. She's in her 70s. And she was here when the city was occupied for months by Russian forces. She's moved her bed to this corner of her apartment. It doesn't have any windows. And she's hiding under blankets during attacks. She's saying, I'm not sure what was scarier, living under occupation or under this constant shelling. But like most Ukrainians, she also does not want to trade any Ukrainian territory for a peace deal with Russia. Uh, neither do General Zeluzhny or President Zelensky. This weekend, when the European Commission's president was in Kyiv, Zelensky made that very clear. He said for us to sit down with Russia and give it something, that will not happen. Joanna, before we let you go, Ukraine is continuing mm-hmm. to fight this counteroffensive. What's the latest on that? So, you know, the front line in the south, it's stalled right now. It's heavily landmined. And so the Ukrainians are struggling to advance. And Ukraine is battling strong Russian offensives in the east. The Russians are hammering the town of Avdivka in the Donetsk region in an effort to conquer it. The Russians are also trying to recapture the Kupiansk area in the northeast, which the Ukrainians liberated last year. Uh, But Ukrainian forces have made some strategic strikes on Russian military targets in Crimea the peninsula that Russia legally annexed in 2014. Just this weekend, they hit a Russian shipyard with long-distance missiles. The Ukrainians want to show that with the right weapons, this war does not have to end in a stalemate. That's NPR's Joanna Kakissis in Kiev. Joanna, thank you. You're welcome. Both big industries and the Biden administration are promoting a possible climate solution that involves trapping carbon dioxide from smokestacks and storing it underground. But lots of communities are pushing back, and now the U.S. Forest Service is stepping in with its own plan. Here's NPR's Julia Simon. To understand why the U.S. Forest Service is getting involved, you have to know about this proposed climate solution called carbon capture and storage. By capturing and storing carbon dioxide from polluting sources, we can make real progress in tackling the climate crisis. That's Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm in an agency video. Some industries, like cement or gas power plants, emit a bunch of carbon dioxide that heats the planet. With this tech, the idea is to capture that pollution from smokestacks, inject it underground, and store it. There are billions of dollars for this tech in recent climate legislation and direct investments from the Biden administration. Now, the Forest Service is proposing changing a rule so this CO2 could be stored under the country's national forests and grasslands. But environmental groups and researchers have concerns. CO2 pollution will need to be transported via pipeline for storage, says June Sakara, a research fellow with Boston University. To get the CO2 to the injection site in the midst of our national forests, they've got to build huge pipelines. Sakara says building those CO2 pipelines may require clearing a lot of trees. And there are concerns about pipeline safety. If a pipeline breaks, CO2 can displace oxygen and can be hazardous, says Victoria Bogdan Tejeda, attorney at the Center for Biological Diversity. It's a deadly asphyxiant whether it leaks near a town or whether it leaks near a forest. Across the country, locals have been pushing back against proposed carbon dioxide pipelines in their communities. Last month, Navigator CO2 Ventures canceled a proposed multi-state CO2 pipeline in the Midwest, citing unpredictable state regulatory processes. The Forest Service did not respond to NPR's questions about potentially allowing CO2 storage on national forests. Public comments on the proposed rule change are open until January 2nd. Julia Simon, NPR News. And then there were none. No more army bases named for Confederate generals. The years-long renaming process has been completed. That story later today on All Things Considered. To listen, tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. 
This is MPB Think Radio. Good morning. It's 19 minutes after 8 on your Monday, November 6th. I'm Desiree Frazier, and you're listening to Morning Edition. It's Monday. It's time to get up and get going. And as you do so, we appreciate you tuning in to MPB. In our weather, we can expect cloudy skies today, partly cloudy, that is. Highs mostly in the 80s, Alcorn, Wiggins, Jackson, 83. Horn Lake, Leakesville, Laurel, Tylertown, all at a high of 82. And Philadelphia and Long Beach, 80. On Mississippi edition at 8.30 in 10 minutes, voters cast their ballots for governor and other statewide and local races tomorrow. We'll talk about that. And we go to Oxford and Greenwood to talk with folks about who they want to see in office. Plus, the Department of Health is providing visits to their clinics free with a rideshare company. Autocorrect on MPB Think Radio, helping you correct your auto problems. Our host is Coach Charlie Milton, ASC Certified Master Technician. Let me help save you some money working on your cars. Listen to our podcast, Autocorrect. The Mississippi Authority for Educational Television Board of Directors will meet Tuesday, November 14th, 2023 at 10 a.m. at 3825 Ridgewood Road, Jackson, Mississippi. The MAET board will conduct business concerning the operations of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The meeting is open to the public. For information, call MPB at 601-432-6565. More information at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Smart Mouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. Smart Mouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and super centers, or at smartmouth.com. From UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Veterans Day is this coming weekend. It's a time to acknowledge and honor those who have served in the military. This year, it comes at a time of serious tensions in the Middle East, tensions that reverberate here in the U.S., where many people are sorting through complicated emotions around identity, history, and values. There's a group of people whose work and indeed their lives touch on all of these sensitive issues. We are talking about Muslim chaplains serving in the U.S. Armed Forces. Filmmakers David Washburn and Razi Jaffrey profiled three of them for a new film that premieres tonight on PBS. It's called Three Chaplains, and I spoke with the filmmakers about it. Okay, David, I'm going to start with you, and forgive me for pointing this out. You're not a Muslim. You're not clergy. You're not in the military. How did you get interested in this story? I did a short film series with Muslim veterans prior to this that was looking at, you know, military life for Muslims in a post 9-11 era. And through meeting these veterans, I was introduced to Muslim chaplains Hmm. in the U.S. military. And they're essentially the public face of Islam in the U.S. military. So just by the nature of them being Muslim leaders in the military, they are combating Islamophobia. They're pushing back against misunderstanding every day. Raza, what about you? I think people may remember, because I know that we covered one of your previous films. What about this particular project interested you? Yeah, in my previous film, Hemtramck USA, we explored life and democracy in America's first Muslim-majority city. And so in the way that Muslims engage with the civic process, the electoral process, you know, one of the most important aspects of American society. And so for me, it's really important to represent Muslims um, in ways that were not often seen in media and in the public. You profile three different individuals, and they all have these really different stories. So let me just play this clip of Chaplain Saleha Jabin. She's talking about her efforts to become the first female Muslim chaplain in the military. Here she is. When I first signed the contract, 
and I talk to my of some of my close of female Muslim friends. And the questions I was asked was, why do you want to join force with a system that is hell-bent on destroying your own Muslim sisters and brothers? That was one of the first things I was thrown at in my face. I think Saleha's response would probably be, I'm, as she shares later in the film, like, I understand we need to heal. I understand there's all sorts of tensions going on in civilian life. I want to take some of that healing and do work inside hmm. the U.S. military. As the other chaplains articulate in interviews that aren't seen in the film, they essentially say, you know, there's over 5,000 Muslim service members right now in the U.S. military. And if we're not here, who's going to take care of their needs? It was interesting to hear the other two people that you interviewed to talk about just how they thrived and survived, but still had to kind of manage these kinds of questions, even to the point of two of them having been sort of publicly held up as examples of in the conservative media, I should say, as like, what are they doing there? And here's Khaled Shabazz. He is a colonel in the U.S. Army. I'm always in this uh, this quagmire where you got to prove yourself that you're not what people think. It really just irks me for every time somebody introduced me to say that I'm the Muslim chaplain. Like nobody says, this is the Catholic chaplain. You know, this is the Protestant chaplain. David, you were talking a bit about that, because one of the points that you were making is that these chaplains serve everybody. They are there specifically to assist the Muslim service members in the practice of their faith, but they really are there to counsel everybody, and they do. Yeah, their daily life is one of interreligious dialogue. And so that fascinated us as filmmakers also, because you know, that's kind of that's what we want to see in the world. We want to see more interconnectedness between people of different backgrounds, understanding each other's perspective. And I'm Jewish. Razi's Muslim. We've had some of these conversations ourselves, given the conflict that has, has risen recently in, in Gaza and Israel. And so that kind of interconnectedness and understanding that is played out just on our film team is playing out like every day for these people on base. And what Khalid articulates in that moment, the sense that he's perceived to be an outsider or the mm -hmm. enemy, unfortunately, by too many folks until he proves otherwise. The third person whom you profile is Rafael Lantigua is a major in the Air Force, and he says, I'm an American Muslim who identifies as Afro-Latino. 168 hours in the course of the week, 50 of those hours I wear the uniform of this country. And wherever I go, thank you, sir, for your service. You're amazing. My kids want to shake your hand. We salute you. But for the rest of those hours during the course of the week, I'm either a light-skinned brother or I'm an undocumented worker from across the southern border or I'm a terrorist from the Middle East. That was deep. I found myself wondering if doing this film gave, particularly the, the two gentlemen who'd been in, in longer some sort of release for themselves to articulate these things. I think it, it is relieving for them. And I think as the project went on, I think they shared more and more about some of the things that they were experiencing. They're constantly, you know, their loyalties questioned on, you know, really both on all sides. I think if people watch this film, they will be surprised by the level of honesty in which people in uniform are talking not only about their experiences, but about their just their vulnerabilities as humans. This film obviously took some time to develop. I'm just wondering how you think it lands in the current moment. Yeah, it did start quite a while ago. I mean, we were filming through the previous president's Muslim travel ban. Um, we were editing during a, the current president's you know, pull out of Afghanistan and now the current conflict in, in Gaza and Israel. And each one of those reframes how we thought about the film. In some ways, this film is, is bridging like religious conversations. It's also bridging like a military-civilian divide that I think is obviously something we need, we need to have in this country. So we're understanding like what's at stake when our military gets engaged. That's David Washburn. He's the director and producer, along with Razi Jaffrey, who's also a producer of Three Chaplains. It airs as part of the Independent Lens series on PBS. You'll want to check your local listings for exact times. David Washburn, Razi Jaffrey, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Michelle. This is NPR News.
This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This forecast is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Smarter, better health care. More at bcbsms.com. No big changes over the next couple of days. We're going to keep the weather very warm and toasty through at least Wednesday. We'll actually hold off our next chance of any measurable rain until Thursday. Horn Lake, we kick off this week with sunny skies today or high this afternoon into the upper 70s. Later on tonight, mainly clear, overnight lows in the upper 50s. In Jackson, we should see sunshine today. Our high temperatures will be right around the low 80s. Later on tonight, mainly clear. Overnight lows will drop down to right around 55 degrees. And in Biloxi, plenty of sunshine temperatures today in the low 80s. Tonight, partly cloudy patchy fog and mid-50s. I'm meteorologist Sally Russell. This is Think Radio. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, November 6th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, voters are making final decisions about who they will elect for governor tomorrow. We visit the cities of Oxford, Greenwood, and Lexington to speak with folks about who they want to see in office. Plus, the Mississippi Department of Health is helping folks visit their clinics with free rideshare services. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Many Mississippians flocked to Oxford this weekend for the football game between the University of Mississippi and Texas A&M. Outside of the stadium is the Grove, where thousands of people gather under tents to cook out, talk with one another, and enjoy tailgating. Our Will Stribling was there this weekend amongst a crowd of people clad in red and signs that said Rebels for Tate Reeves. Reeves was among the crowd trying to rally his base prior to Tuesday's election. Oxford resident Jeffrey Yost says he's a longtime conservative and is planning to vote for the Republican incumbent. Known Tate for a long time, voted for him about every election, and, uh, but I'll tell you what meant the most to me for this particular election is the leadership that he showed during the COVID uh, p- pandemic. And uh, a lot of states were in a really bad way, uh, but I thought that, that Tate and uh, his team, uh, the leadership of the National Guard, the health department, uh, I thought that they did an outstanding job making sure that the Mississippians were uh, well tested and uh, the vaccination stations and uh, and he didn't just completely lock us down uh, and that was a really important thing uh, not only for the school kids but folks who were uh, having to go to work every day so uh, I personally appreciated uh, his leadership in that area. What have you thought about this election cycle compared to past? You know it certainly seems like uh, Brandon Presley has given him a run for his money more so than Jim Hood did four years ago. Oh uh, Brandon Presley is an outstanding politician. And he's a super guy, too. I mean, he's, the, he's one of the best courthouse politicians uh, uh, in the state and, and has been that way since he was the mayor of Nettleton. And uh, much better politician than Jim Hood, for sure. But uh, Brand is likable, and he's a good guy. And so, you know, it's going to be a tough race for Tate. I think he'll win probably 54, uh, 54 percentage points, but nobody dislikes Brandon Presley. What have you disliked about his platform? You said you're voting for Tate, but was there anything about Brandon's platform that you liked that you wish Tate had adopted or anything like that? No, not necessarily. Uh, I'm a conservative, and uh, and while 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 Brandon is is, is kind of a yellow dog Democrat, I'm going to go with the the more conservative candidate and somebody who also has been been true. tried uh, and true uh, as a former lieutenant governor and r- running the Senate. Uh, he's got he's right on the policies. He's not always the most likable guy. I mean, everybody, you know, we can all agree on that, but uh, he's always right on the policies. And so uh, I don't think we need to change horses at this at this point in time. And Matt Bailey of Ridgeland says he's also supporting Tate Reeves this year. Well, I like his platform. I think he's been a good governor, and I think he'll continue to be a good governor. Is there anything that sticks out to you, like well, education, he's, he's economic good development? With firefighters, he's good with PERS, he's good with uh, the whole state to me. There's, what have you, uh, well, you thought about this race so far? It seems like, uh, you know, Brandon Presley's given him a better run for his money than Jim Hood did four years ago. 
Well, we have to wait and see that in the election. I don't know whether they are, he's giving them a better run or not, but I think Tate Reeves is going to beat him. What have you thought about the, all the fanfare around Medicaid expansion in particular being a really big issue for, for, of, this ele- of this election cycle? Well, I do think it's a big issue, but I think it's something that, uh, that the governor as well as the legislature needs to come together on. Also in the crowd is Kimball Wilbanks of Corinth. He says he has a personal connection with Reeves and supports his policies. Yeah, he's done a lot for Mississippi, especially here in North Mississippi in Alcorn County where I'm from. We just opened the new sawmill, multi-million dollar sawmill that he flew in for, for the ribbon cutting. And just really the way he promotes businesses back to Mississippi, encourage our, our college graduates to stay in Mississippi. And uh, I just like his conservative values. And then uh, what have you thought of the the race thus far? It seems like Brandon Presley's given him a run for his money more so than Jim Hood did four years ago. That's correct. A lot of negative advertising on Mr. Presley's behalf. And, of course, the absentee ballots always scare me. But uh, at the same time, I feel confident that, that uh, Governor Reeves has done a good job and that the people of Mississippi will hopefully turn out to vote for him. Have you thought about that, the, the, like the negative ads run by, by both camps and just the kind of nasty turn this uh, race has taken in the final weeks? Yeah, I always hate to see that, but you normally do with some fairly hotly uh, tested, contested uh, elections, and uh, that's part of it. Uh, a lot of times you would wish that both, both sides would just speak the truth and let it go as that, uh, but uh, I understand that's part of it. That's Kimball Wilbanks of Corinth. Republican incumbent Tate Reeves is currently ahead in the polls, but some reports show he only leads by a few percentage points against Democrat Brandon Presley. Coming up, we're speaking with voters in Greenwood and Lexington about who they're supporting in the upcoming gubernatorial election. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks to our sustaining members who provide ongoing monthly financial support. You can become a sustainer, too. Go to mpbonline.org and click Donate Now at the top of the page. MPB's future depends on listener support in all shapes and sizes. One of the many ways that you can make a long-term impact is by donating land or business properties you no longer need. More information about the advantages of donating real estate to secure Mississippi Public Broadcasting's future can be found at mpbonline.org. Start your work week with a morning of locally produced programs on MPB Think Radio. At 9, it's Deep South Dining, featuring conversations about Southern cuisine. Hear interviews with interesting Mississippians on Now You're Talking at 10. And at 11, there's information on leading a healthy life on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Democratic candidate for governor Brandon Presley spoke in Greenwood this weekend to a crowd of supporters. He's campaigning in the area where a local hospital is in financial crisis. Greenwood LaFleur already closed its labor and delivery unit last year. Among those at the rally is Robert Beasley of Greenwood. He says Brandon Presley supports Medicaid expansion, which experts say could help alleviate the financial strain on rural hospitals. This hospital issue is a hot issue here in in this county. Not only is it going to affect the mortality rate, businesses are going to leave here because they don't have access to medical care if people get hurt. We have student athletes that play football and other other sports. That's school here, right? Yeah, and they might get injured. They got to go all the way to Grenada or Greenville or Jackson to get treated. Um, it might be too late you know, for them to have to travel that far. We need health care right here. The Florida County is a large county, one of the largest counties in the state with a huge population, and it's spread out. 
it takes, as he said, four to five minutes to get to Grenada, an hour to get to Greenville, an hour and a half to get to Jackson. A heart attack victim is not going to make it. We had a young lady to lose her child in pregnancy trying to get to Grenada, to the hospital. That's how important this is. It's not just about making sure that we have health care available. It's making sure that it's there for everybody. Because I got I got elderly relatives here um, who need medical care frequently, but they can't travel. They don't. We, we're both veterans, and we're working on transportation for veterans in this area. That's another thing that Brandon uh, I support him for, because he supports veterans and and those veterans who can't afford uh, to get transportation to get to the VA. He, he's trying to help us get transportation in this area for for that a veteran court where we can divert veterans who have mental disorder issues to treatment rather than incarceration. It's a lot of issues that we support him for. Also in the crowd is Demetrius Bedell of Greenwood. He tells our Mike McEwen, Brandon Presley is seen as someone who understands the needs of the poor and low-income people in Mississippi. You can't understand a problem in depth unless you've been in that particular situation. If you ain't never been hungry before, you can't express how feel being hungry. And I'm not talking about, I'm hungry, let me go over here to McDonald's and give me something to eat. I'm talking about hungry, I can't go nowhere, I ain't got no money, get nothing to eat. My stomach got to growl until I figure out something. If you ain't sit there and say, I got a light bill I got to pay, but I need to go get some gas for my car so I can make it to work, so I can make some more money to pay a light bill, and you got to make a choice. If you ain't been there, you don't understand. So the one that we got now do not understand because he have rich people problems. He ain't got down to earth problem. And that's a big difference. And I don't care what nobody said. There's a very big difference between rich people problem and poor people problem. And Presley understands because he's been there, done that, and did that. Unless you've been out there in the cotton field and you can chop some cotton and you didn't have to make some money for some school clothes, you don't know what struggle is. And that's where he's coming from. He's coming from experience. And when I talk about experience, we're talking about life experience. That he understands the small man. He understands the, the common person that needs the help. People up there that got money, they don't need no help. What do you make, how, how are you feeling about his chances? I know a lot of people in the past couple of months have expressed, like, maybe some pessimism with me. Like, oh, yeah, I like the guy. He's running a good campaign, but it's Mississippi. How do you feel about his chances of winning? I- I think it's great because he can relate to the people and the people will relate to him. Yeah. And that's the big difference. You see where the, the lady has dropped out and says she support him. Gwendolyn Gray. Gwendolyn Gray, that's a big, huge boost to him. And that's why at the polls it's tied now. Only thing that needs to be done is come Tuesday, everybody get out and vote. And he will be the next governor. There's no if and buts about it. If the polls show that he's tied right now, Everybody know that Democrats come out on the day of election and vote. If they come out and do like they they should do and, and, and supposed to do, he would be the next governor. The optimism is there. No one has been this close to, to a Republican governor. I don't know when. Twenty years. That's Demetrius Bedell of Greenwood. Presley also made a stop this weekend in Lexington, the seat of Holmes County. It's one of the poorest counties in the country. After the event, Lexington resident D.J. James said Mississippi needs a change of leadership. Tate Reeves talking about uh, Brandon Presley wants to change Mississippi. Mississippi needs a change. Young adults graduate from college with master's degrees, doctor's degrees. They have to go out of the state of Mississippi to get a good paying, decent job. That's not fair. You understand, uh, people are sick. They can't, uh, you can't buy your medicine, pay for your doctor visit. You can't do all that. Pay for your testing and stuff. You know, the tests you have, your blood drawn. You can't do all that on these salaries. A family pack of chicken wings is $16. Most people start out with $10 an hour. You cannot, a family of four cannot survive off of $10 an hour. $15 not enough. $16 not enough. Mississippi need a change for the best. 
We need economic development. You understand? We need that pay raise he gave the teacher. My daughter is an assistant principal up in Starville. My other daughter is a nurse. She have to go traveling in order to make money. My daughter that's a nurse. The one that's the assistant principal. This, that wasn't a $6,000 raise like they pretend. We need something different for Mississippi. We last in everything. We're at the bottom of everything. Those test scores are not real. That he pretend like reading and stuff. That's not real. We are last in everything. Look at the dropout rate for our young people. Just look at it in USC. You're a Lexington resident? I'm a Holmes County resident. I live in Durant. Okay. I'm, I work three jobs. I'll be 62 in December. I work three jobs in order to make it. You how, understand? How does it make you feel as a Holmes County resident to have somebody running for governor come out and visit you all here in Lexington? Well, it made us feel good because, you know, what? no one has ever did that. No one has ever did. Let me see. Wait a minute. I don't know if Ray Mabers now. I don't know. But no one has ever did that. And, and we need some changes. We need some things done for Mississippi. Now, if you pay attention, didn't nothing but one of our elected officials, I uh, think one supervisor was here. It should have been all of them. We need some things in Holmes County, but not just the Delta. Everybody. Okay, those good jobs that he brought here. They either in North Mississippi or down there on the coast or over there to the east. They're not here. They're not here. They're not in the depth. Everything is closing. That was Holmes County voter D.J. James speaking with our Mike McEwen. Brandon Presley has visited all 82 counties in Mississippi during his campaign, a promise he made when he announced his run for governor. Coming up, the Mississippi Department of Health is partnering with the rideshare service Uber to offer free rides for health care services. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you aren't near a radio, you can still listen to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. You can download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone or listen online at mpbonline.org. I'm Scott Tong. A new investigation by the Chicago Sun-Times and member station WBEZ finds some Chicago police officers are members of the far-right extremist group, the Oath Keepers. Chicagoans also told journalists they experienced racism from some of those cops. That story, next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on MVB Think Radio. Connect with the people looking to connect with you. Become an underwriter with Mississippi Public Broadcasting. For more information, go to mpbonline.org slash more slash underwriting. Family owned. You know, I respect my dad a lot. I know it wasn't easy when he passed the baton to me. But in the end, he realized it was the best thing for the business to sometimes look at things from different color lenses. Family owned a legacy leadership podcast exploring family businesses who make up the backbone of the American economy. Listen now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or go to mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Leaders with the Mississippi Department of Health say patients don't show up to 50% of their doctor visits. That high no-show rate leads to backing up patient scheduling and also means folks who need health care aren't getting it. But many of these appointments aren't being missed by negligence, but because it can be difficult for people to get to health department clinics. To help alleviate the burden of transportation, the Department of Health is rolling out a new program to offer free rideshare services to their county clinics and to pick up prescribed medications. Dr. Dan Edney is the state health officer and says they have partnered with Uber to make this happen. 50% no-show rate is excessively high for health care. You know, most clinics are running more, well below 20%. So this is a big concern to me that there are people who need us, who are trying to get to us, and yet 
uh, we are running into hurdles of them getting to us. Well, this program will eliminate the hurdle of transportation. And I understand we are talking about serving the uninsured, um, which is 70% of the population that we take care of at the health departments. Uh, the 30% that do have insurance, the vast majority of those are Medicaid, and we will continue to use the great services of our partners and the Medicaid transportation program uh, for that population. But we are basically talking about providing simple taxi service to get to us, to get to the pharmacy if they need it, and to get home. And that includes our non-medical program. So this is not purely a medical transportation. This is a transportation for those who need public health services, such as WIC. This is a demonstration project. It's a short-term project to help us alleviate uh, the public health crisis of the, the syphilis uh, epidemic and the severe outbreak and uh, increase in the numbers of congenital syphilis. Uh, we have got to be able to get our our folks to the health department for diagnosis and treatment of this condition, and then also, especially for our family planning services. I, I foresee those family planning, uh, our sexually transmitted disease, HIV work, and our WIC work for the uninsured being the highest need for our transportation services. Dr. Edney says the program will be available statewide where Uber services are operating. And he says there are other partners who are interested in working with the state if this program is successful. Dr. Victor Sutton is the chief of community health and clinical services at the Department of Health. He says addressing the root issue of transportation can help folks with one of the most crucial social determinants of health. When we talk about social determinants, we're really talking about a number of different issues. Uh, it could be health care. It could be uh, transportation. Uh, it could be getting to healthy foods, uh, quality schools, just a number of, of issues that, that determine health, quality health outcomes. So this program is, is really exciting. And, the, and one of the exciting parts is that you don't need the Uber app. You can, you can simply um, reach out to uh, our 855 number, uh, 767-0170. And if this is a new appointment, if this is an, uh, uh, another appointment that just need to come to provide, get a service at the health department, uh, it would take the information that you need and we can set up that particular ride. Uh, and so in our state, uh, there's another thing that comes up as it relates to service. This is a statewide program. And so it, it has another benefit as a community economic development benefit. This has the potential to create uh, opportunities and jobs all around our state. So when we have areas where there's uh, low service uh, around this particular transportation project, it it create um, it create and drive the market to help um, find drivers uh, for those particular places where there may be gaps in in the state. Dr. Sutton says the Department of Health will closely monitor the program to see how it can be improved. We are going to be collecting a lot of information. She'll be able to know who's accessing our, our uh, services. Um, and more importantly, why are they not accessing the services? When, when we hear about no-show rates, there's a lot of folks that want to come to the health department but, but don't have access to, a, to transportation to get there. And this has been a barrier that we've seen not only just with us but across, across the board. So it speaks to a very um, unique um, position that, that we're faced with and trying to address some of these particular areas. So really, really excited about, about the project and looking forward to kicking it off. It's get kicked off today. We are working with various partners as well, uh, looking for new partners. And there's just a really great opportunity to kind of see where we are in moving our state forward because we're, this is all about getting healthier act, outcomes for our state. State Health Officer Dr. Edney says this isn't a problem unique to health care and could be an effective tool for many state agencies in the future. Uh, transportation is a barrier for really you know, all the good work that several of our state agencies are doing. And there have been attempts in the past to try to alleviate this problem that really just haven't been successful. But the, you know, the opportunity that we have now is is a way 
that we uh, can provide safe, reliable transportation in a way that protects patient privacy uh, and, and to do so not only for clinical services, but for non-clinical services, which has been one of the holdups uh, with uh, other opportunities, and to do it in a, in a way as we complete the demonstration project in a manner that other state agencies with similar issues with transportation for, for their clients would be able to utilize as well. Dr. Edney says the contract is through June of next year, but could be expanded in the future. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi programming. Coming up at 9, it's Deep South Dining. I'm Desiree Frazier. Join us tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi Edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Have a good day. One data target that puts all Americans at risk. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace Tech. I'm Lily Jamali. Marketplace Tech is supported by Michigan Technological University, whose College of Computing is training tomorrow's AI experts, cybersecurity specialists, and big data visionaries online at mtu.edu computing. And by Pi Insurance, helping small businesses thrive with commercial insurance designed to be as easy as Pi, so you can get back to business. Learn more from your agent or at IWantPi.com. Remember when President Trump tried to ban TikTok? He said at the time that the data of American users risked falling into the hands of Chinese authorities who have ties to the app's owners. A judge blocked the ban, but even if he hadn't, experts say so much of our information is available to buy elsewhere from run-of-the-mill data brokers. And that can have big consequences for national security, especially when it comes to information on members of the military. Justin Sherman heads a team at Duke that tried buying just that kind of data, and he says it wasn't that hard. We were able to purchase a range of data about active duty military service members, their families, their acquaintances, as well as some veterans. This spans data about people's health conditions, data about people's finances. Are they in debt? Do they have a mortgage? How many children you have in the home and what the estimated ages of those children are. And so we really uh, walked away with the sense that this data is, in many cases, very clearly linked to a person by name. And this is also a lot of sensitive data that many service members probably don't suspect is out there for sale by these data brokers. And in one case, you got names, home addresses, emails, cell phone numbers on 5,000 active duty service members and veterans in and around D.C., 32 cents per record. No background checks. The data brokers we purchased from did not vet who we were. We even had one broker, and this, still even studying this, I found this a little shocking, had said to us that if we were to pay by credit card for the data set, you have to go through our background check process, we have to do identity verification, right? Or you can pay by wire. We paid by wire, we did not have to do a background check, and we got the data set. And what are the national security implications of this data on active service members as well as veterans being so readily available? Foreign spy agencies are really interested in particularly people who have security clearances or people who are involved in national security, right? Because if you want someone to leak secrets, you're going to target people who work in the military or work in the government. And so The fact that it was so easy for us to buy this and get data linked to specific people suggests that it'd be really easy for a foreign actor to do the exact same thing uh, and to get data you might not get elsewhere, right? Financial data, for instance, if you're trying to identify people in debt, that could be really, really dangerous um, from a national security perspective if you can identify and target and then blackmail particular people. That was Justin Sherman, senior fellow at Duke's Sanford School of Public Policy. Rosie Hughes produced this episode. I'm Lily Jamali, and that's Marketplace Tech.
This is APM. From pre-K to high school, Mississippi Public Broadcasting's education department enriches student learning. Learn more at mpbonline.org. This forecast is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi and the MyBlue mobile app for people on the go. More at bcbsms.com. Our weather very quiet, very tranquil, and quite warm over the next couple of days. We have our next disturbance moving in later in the week, so we may see the potential for some wet weather by Thursday. South Haven, sunny skies today are high this afternoon into the upper 70s. Later on tonight, mainly clear and overnight low in the upper 50s. Meridian, plenty of sunshine. Our high temperatures today will be right around 80. Later on tonight, mainly clear and overnight low will drop down into the lower 50s. And in Gulfport, lots of sunshine today. Our high this afternoon, lower 80s. Tonight, partly cloudy, a little fog in mid-50s overnight. I'm meteorologist Sally Russell. This is Think Radio. 